This never happened to the other fella. And welcome back to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, a podcast about the films that time never called back. I'm Green, Gareth Green, and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time arch-nemesis, Andrew Phillips. Playing the part of Misty Slits. (laughs) (laughs) And with the release of Spectre, today we're undercover with a fresh-faced 007 in Peter Hunt's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But does this Bond have a license to kill our expectations? Or are two lives too many for this relic of the past? Find out after the trailer. An avalanche of action. Bigger. Better. Different. It's got to be when he's around. Vistas of sweeping splendor. Different. It must be so if he's in the picture. Fabulous beauties. All of them dolls. Every one different. They've got to be when he's around. My name's Bond. James Bond. The new Bond. Suppose I were to kill you for a thrill. The different 007. George Lazenby. The different bond from the same stable. Diana Rake has the Comtessa, the different bond woman. This one's got class and style. The villains with a difference. Telly Savalas as Blofeld, a new destructive force. With a difference. If my demands are not met, I shall proceed with a systematic extinction of whole species of cereals and livestock all over the world. Gabriel Fazzetti as Draco, a tough mafia daddy with a problem child. Papa, where's James? Don't worry, you'll join us soon. But we can't leave him. He doesn't need your help. I will not go without him. You'll have to. On the day you marry her, I'll give you a personal dowry of one million pounds. Oh, oh. Double O seven times more exciting than your wildest dreams. Starring a guy you've never heard of from a film you've never seen. On Her Majesty's Secret Service cast George Lazenby as the much-loved British icon, Sean Connery. (laughs) Peter Hunt's film follows James Bond as he attempts to leave his old life behind and ultimately find love. 
There's also something about undercover spies, elaborate gunfights, bald arch villains with insane evil plans, and the shagging of lots and lots of women. So, with the release of Spectre, we wanted to take a look at a forgotten Bond film. And there were a few possible choices in the series that we could mount an episode around. Yes. But I left the decision to our resident Bond expert, and Andy, you nominated on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Can you tell us a little bit about why? Mainly because of George Lazenby himself. He is the lost Bond actor. He's the only actor who made one film. Even Timothy Dalton managed to make two. So he didn't yeah. make much more of an impact. And he's slightly more in the public eye because he's still active. He's still well known. Uh, whereas George Lazenby almost slipped away. He's never really been anything major ever since, really. He's done a couple of TV things and weird films here and there. But this was his one moment to shine. And then he slipped back into obscurity. It's almost like On a Majesty's Secret Service was his 15 minutes of fame. It really was, yeah. And now they're behind him. This is um, a real one-off yeah, for the series. And I don't really feel we return to it again properly until Casino Royale, to an extent. I don't think any of the films that have been made since have the same level of class as this one. But in terms of how it tells a story, then yeah, probably not till Daniel Craig's there where he really returned to this area. No, I'd say thematically, Casino Royale is like a nice companion piece to On Her Majesty's Secret well, Service, actually. in more ways than one, the book of On Her Majesty's Secret Service is a spiritual sequel to Casino Royale. Ah, oh, right. Because in a lot of ways, they, they share a lot of plot similarities. Uh, both of the leading ladies die at the end. He falls in love with both of them. And they also have one other thing in common that... Both books are set at Casino Royale at the start of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He's in exactly the same location and recalls the events of Casino Royale at the beginning of the book. Was this book actually wrote around the same time as Casino Royale? Was it actually a sequel to Casino Royale? No, it was written 10 years after, almost 10 years after. So this is actually another thing, whereas Casino Royale is the first James Bond book and talks about Bond's early career. Honor Majesty's is much later and it's it's the start of his downfall when you read the later Fleming novels this is the decline of Bond this is him at the end of his career really he's burnt yeah. out which is all brought on by the death of Tracy so he's pretty much a, a, a shadow shallow of his, his former yeah, self yeah he's a shadow of his former self in the, in the last two books and he never really recovers so it's quite a pivotal book in regards to me and my relationship with Alan Majesty's Secret Service it's actually a film that I've only come to know quite well very recently i'd followed the bond series but only from golden eye onwards i'd seen each yeah, film in the cinemas yeah. bar one or two here and there and i'd been a fan of what came after golden eye apart from you know the later brosnan shit mm. but i hadn't really delved into the bond of the past so roger moore george lazenby and sean connery i knew them as bond but i didn't really know their films. Yeah. And it's only until the past five years that I've actually delved into the past. Yeah. And looked at those early Bond films. And you recommended that I watch on Her Majesty's Secret Service relatively early. You said it was a good setup for what Bond is and who he should be. Yeah. And because of that, I've always been quite fond of him since. Mm. I've always been quite fond of this film. But everybody that I speak to in terms of um, casual fans of the series... Yeah. They always speak of George Lazenby, like, oh, I'm that guy. Yeah. He's not one that's really brought up in conversation to talk about, oh, he was a great Bond or anything like no, that. He's always it's more so, like, he's, it's an oddity. Yeah, this film's always looked at as a, a weak link in the chain when, uh, 
nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. In terms of general audiences, this has been left completely behind. Yeah, yeah. And was almost immediately as well. And this we'll talk about when we talk about the aftermath of this film. Yes, definitely. But um, yeah, it's a real oddity because yeah, the style they were going for, the actor, none of this was repeated again. And it's one of those films that the Bond producers themselves use as a measure of quality. This film, along with From Russia With Love, which is the film that it most resembles in style. Okay, just before we go any further, I think we've got to set up a couple of things for the episode that's about to take place. Mm. It's not going to be quite like the usual episode we make because recently Andy and I took part in a Bond marathon, which was 26 films, including the non-canon ones, over just over three days. Yeah. And it nearly killed us. Including the non-canon ones was really a great idea. Yeah, no. <laughs> so that included the Casino Royale TV version. Yeah. Starring Jimmy Bond. Which is actually quite enjoyable. I, I really yeah. enjoyed I'd it. I've seen it before, it was quite fun. but only when I was like 10, so it didn't really make an impact on me. And we watched the other Casino Royale that yeah. nobody speaks of, um, which is the spoof comedy why. version. Oh, it's god-awful. Oh. And uh, we watched Never Say Never Again, which was supposed to be Sean Connery's big return to the Bond series, but was... Just a damp squib. Really. Yeah, yeah. It works in places, but mostly it's uh, very uneventful and rather tacky. Yeah. <laughs> but since we've actually um, watched all the Bond films recently, after the episode's complete, we're actually going to go through a few of our favourite Bond films and Bond moments. Yeah, yeah. So there's going to be plenty more about Bond to come in this episode. Yes. We're not going to be speaking about just on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's going to be a little bit of a James Bond special this mm-hmm. episode. Indeed do. Okay, but first up, we do have to speak about Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yep. <laughs> and so, it's time for us to get into the context. I mean, we need to set the scene as to what actually happened, how George Lazenby came to be Bond, what happened with Sean Connery, why did he leave, and generally, how this film came to be made. Yeah. The Book of Her Majesty's does have a strong connection with the film series anyway, as this was the first book that was written whilst the Bond film series was in production so Ian Fleming wrote this in the early part of 1962 Ah. which was when Dr. No was filming and as Dr. No was set in Jamaica they were literally filming one side of the island whilst he was writing this book on the other side of the island (laughs) and certain things from the film influenced Fleming when he was writing this novel most obviously is that he slightly retcons Bond's past as this book has a strong subplot involving heraldry fleming actually changed bond's origins to be scottish in order to sort of honor sean connery's portrayal of the role so he kind of made bond a scottish bond which is seeded right through until present day because skyfall uses that a lot Uh, but it all stems from this that the fact that he was writing the book at the same time as they were making the first film so Sean Connery is almost responsible for Bond's new heritage, almost. Yeah, and this was very much going to be a Sean Connery film. I mean, not even just because Sean Connery was contracted for six films and this would have been the sixth film, but it was actually meant to have been made much earlier. It was actually meant to be the fifth film at one point. They had it pegged to be what is now You Only Live Twice, but they couldn't because of reasons to do with weather, I think. Yeah, but also even before that, it was going to follow Goldfinger. Oh, and they'd right. scouted locations for it when they were filming in Switzerland for Goldfinger. But because of all the legal problems involving Thunderball and the rights that were all held up in that, 
they decided to go with Thunderball straight away because they could cut a deal with Kevin McClory and make Thunderball as an Eon James Bond film rather than it being a unofficial film, which obviously did end up being later on. And this was the third attempt at making the film, but they were dealt another blow with the fact that Sean Connery didn't want to continue in the role as Bond and actually left the series one film early. This was for a number of reasons. One the, of which actually involved his spat with the producers. Yeah. Over financial issues, I think. Yeah. Was it royalties that he was promised, or was it just simply he felt he was getting paid less? He too, just too felt, little. Yeah, he just felt he was being paid too little for the contribution that he made to the series' success. And the relationship between them grew so dire that, in fact, during the making of You Only Live Twice, he actually refused to act when Harry Seltzman, the producer, was on set. Yeah, I mean, actually, when any of them were on set, he so just, even Albert just completely as well. stopped acting, yeah. Wow. Um, and there was so much animosity between them in the intervening years. I mean, uh, I can't even imagine how awkward Diamonds of Forever must have been to make because uh, the producers certainly didn't want Sean Connery back. And it was more studio pressure that forced that. And we'll go into that a little bit later. I mean, even Never Say Never Again got made as a kind of fuck you yeah, to the producers yeah. of the Eon Bond films. Oh, yeah. It was more so, oh, well, I'll do it elsewhere and we'll do it better. And that's definitely very debatable mm. <laughs> whether or not it is better. Yeah. And there was other things as well involving the press in Japan when they were making you and Live Twice. There was a story when Sean Connery was caught on the lavatory by a Japanese photographer and that was almost like the last straw for him because <laughs> there was literally no privacy at all when they were making that film and um, I think he'd just grown tired of it all so even before they finished they knew that he was leaving and this will be the last one so that left a Bond-shaped hole yes. in the series. Well, they Sean have... Connery-shaped hole. Well, yes. <laughs> in Bond. Mm. So you've got to fill these boots of this iconic British spy. And you've also got to match the kind of performance that Sean Connery provides to the Bond series. And um, they actually settled down with George Lazenby. Yeah. and it's model-turned-actor. Um... This was his actually first acting job, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting to note who they actually considered around this time i'm not sure whether any of these guys were auditioned or whether they were just approached or the producers were looking at them but some of the other actors that they were considering were actors like jeremy brett who went on to become granada's sherlock holmes and um julian glover oh at wow this time and rather more interestingly and much more publicized was timothy dalton 22 year old timothy yes. dalton at this uh, time, who they'd yeah. seen in the line in winter and really liked but Dalton himself said, I'm just far too young for this. And they kind of agreed with him, but they obviously kept tabs on him. Yeah, they kept that for, one in their pocket. Well, yeah, I mean, he was asked several times before he ended up being James Bond. I think they asked him again around about for your eyes only time. But he must have been too busy doing Flash Gordon at that time. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on, um, on to bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. The story of George Lazenby getting the role is a, a rather weird one, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, is this thing about him being spotted by Albert Broccoli and a barber's in Sean Connery's old barber's. Yeah, well, he had a tip-off from his agent that they were looking for a James Bond and they reckoned that he would be great for it, even though he had no acting experience. He, would just... he does have the look. Oh, he, yeah, he does have in, the uh, look. He'd been in the Fry's chocolate television commercials and he was semi-famous for doing those. But he liked the idea of this and... Um, took it upon himself to replicate the James Bond look. So he did a couple of quite cheeky things. So the first thing he did, he went to 
Savile Row to look at Sean Connery's tailor and said, I want a, a suit like Sean Connery's. And then he went to, I think it's a barber at the Dorchester. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. And um, asked to get a haircut that was like Sean Connery's. I said that like somebody that actually gets his hair done there. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Well, you've just had your haircut yeah. right now, haven't you? So, yeah, you're just at the Dorchester. Well, it's a special occasion. It's, it's well, Bond. And also because of this uncertainty surrounding Daniel Craig. Well, I heard I got, Bond, Gaz. I got a tip that, you know, perhaps they might be looking for a new Bond. <laughs> Gaz Green I'm off to the tailors after Bond. this. <laughs> But um, it was here where Broccoli saw Lazenby for the first time. And then the next thing he did was to actually go to Eon's offices and go into the reception, distract the receptionist and march into Harry Saltzman's office. And um, it was purely out of the cheek and balls that he'd pulled this off that they actually considered him. They actually let him audition for this part. They liked him because of the way that he looked he yeah. physically was the right guy for bond in a lot of other ways he wasn't at this point because he was an australian had a very thick accent and he was very undisciplined these problems did continue to plague them throughout production but they saw the potential in him yeah and it was almost like his arrogance got him noticed but it was also the thing that was his downfall mm. when making the bond film yeah and it's a funny thing when Peter Hunt met him, he was actually, he wasn't very enamored of him at the start because he thought he was a very cocky guy. But as soon as George Lazenby said, I've got a confession to make, I'm not an actor. He was like, you're not an actor? You fooled the two of the yeah. toughest guys I've ever met. Uh, you're an actor. So they were kind of very firmly bonded at that point because Hunt was just a, a disbelief at how he'd actually managed to nab even being considered for the yeah. role they did continue to test him and build him up whilst they were looking for other people he wasn't set on being james bond until almost three or four weeks before they started shooting actually and he never actually signed a contract this is another point of contention he never signed a contract to be james bond throughout the whole production of this film which is why he was able to leave so suddenly just don't know why they would have started without him Absolutely, signing a contract he could have been cheated out of so much money oh, as yeah, well yeah. in terms of royalties. Yeah, because I know he got paid like £100,000 for this film. Which again, it sounds par the course, knowing the producers at that time. Oh, yeah. And the issues that Sean Connery had with mm -hmm. them, that perhaps this was the kind of dodgy dealings they needed to do in order to get these films made. They did a lot of weird things to get him to make sure that he was the right guy for James Bond. One of the weirdest things was they were questioning his sexuality. And uh, <laughs> in order to <laughs> test out how he was as a full-blooded male, they actually sent a girl around to him to sleep with. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is one of the weirder things. This is very strange. Yeah, and um, from then on, they knew that he was straight. <laughs> Let's just say that. This is such a 1960s way of going <laughs> oh, about that, Oh, Jesus, could you imagine them trying to do that now with uh, somebody? It's like something straight out of a Fleming novel, actually. That's, it, it, it really it is, like, yeah. yeah. The other thing was they wanted to see how he was physically... So they set up some fight sequences, choreograph-wise, exactly the same scene as in the, the hotel fight sequence at the start of the film. Yeah. But with Yuri Boryshenko, who plays the the Russian specter guard later yeah. on in the film. Was he, he a wrestler at yeah, the time? He yeah, he was a Russian wrestler. They set him off, and because he was so undisciplined and wasn't trained in stunt fighting, he literally fought for real. And during this fight sequence, managed to knock 
this Yuri Biroshenko out cold. And it was at that moment that Harry Saltzman went, we're going with you. Yeah. <laughs> because they were just they were just like, yeah, this guy's the man. Yeah, Lazenby so. <laughs> says in the documentary that he actually stood over this Russian wrestler's body to come to him and say, you're Bond. You're the yeah. next Bond. He didn't even care that the guy was out cold on yeah. the floor. It's like, no, you're Bond. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they did all that. And then they obviously had to get a dialogue coach into make him sound more English. Yes. He has a kind of a strange mid-Atlantic accent on this one. Yeah, he does. You can hear a twang of Australian throughout the film, apart yeah. from when he's being dubbed, obviously. Yeah, and that, that's another thing that they had to dub him as Hilary Bray with George Baker, who was playing the part of Hilary Bray later on when they realised that George Lazenby wasn't getting his accent right. The thing is as well, going back to how arrogant he was and how he was regarded in that way, I think you do have to be overconfident and cocky and arrogant to fill the shoes of somebody like Sean Connery. They needed somebody that was willing to boss about the room and not kind of shrink to the task well, they needed do. somebody that could rise to it but also work in that environment well and i think that's the part where he fell apart was yeah. um the arrogance wasn't just in the performance it was in the way that he wanted people to deal with him. yeah it was both on and off screen yeah you do need it for bond yes because bond is a swine he's a bit of a dick and um you need that kind of arrogance in order to pull off the character really yeah because he's not a nice man at the end of the day he's he's morally justified but he's not clean cut no in, in fact he's an he's a gray area in and yeah. of himself yeah he's morally questionable in his actions yeah at yeah. the end of the day he is hired to murder people and get information by any means possible yeah that's the question i think that the films ask as well now is that just because the government gives him license to kill doesn't mean that it's good to do that no. you know it's still a damaging and defeating and completely emotionally destroying thing that he's caught up in and it's something that is explored quite substantially in the novels that unfortunately at this point i mean even in this film isn't really explored that much there's a nice passage in the novel where it talks about him getting used to the fact that he's going to get married and that if he gets killed someone will actually miss him rather than uh, beforehand some of his friends might shake their heads and some of his past flings may have a quick cry but yeah. apart from that no one would actually miss him and it's kind of a weird it's kind of sad in a way when you read it because um it's the first time that anyone's actually cared about him yeah because in the films they create this image of bond as the ultimate male fantasy yeah but yet on the page he's he a very lonely all. character you don't yeah. you, you don't want to be bond no no he's a very lonely character he eats on his own a lot yeah. of the time. The novels go into great detail about what he drinks and what he eats and whatever else he does, but it's always on his own. And ultimately, the lifestyle he has chose to lead results in the death of pretty much everybody that he loves. Yeah. Yeah, he's not allowed to enjoy any of it, really. And by the end of the series, he's a broken man. Yeah. It's not a good place to be in it. Yeah, it is only really these new films that explore that area of Bond. And it's a weird thing as well because people are so used to the cinematic Bond. When Bond tries to do in Fleming's James Bond, which is the purest sense of Bond, people are going, oh no, this is not James Bond enough. And I was like, yeah, it fucking is. Yeah. It's James Bond as in <laughs> Ian Fleming's James Bond as the character that was created on page was successful and spearheaded the film series in the first place. Because the Bond books were pretty successful before they even made a film. Yeah, I imagine these are the same people that grew up with Roger Moore as Bond. Yeah, yeah. And were the same people that balked at the idea of Timothy Dalton's yeah, Bond yeah. as well. 
it's this idea of this harder version of Bond that challenges the audience into thinking that this male fantasy isn't healthy. Because we don't get another inkling of Ian Fleming's James Bond until at least, to a lesser extent, For Your Eyes Only, and then to a more major extent, the Timothy Dalton era. After this particular film, we don't really get a sense of Ian Fleming's work coming through the films. No. For an awful long time, because they veer off quite dramatically. Yeah, instead it continues a path that was laid out by You Only Live Twice. Yeah. On a Majesty's Secret Service, try to deviate. The producer's wrists were kind of wrapped for even trying to change the formula. And that's really unfortunate as well. So very much. Because we noticed it immediately when we watched these films in sequence. <laughs> yeah, because we watched these films, like, say, over a three-day period, On a Majesty's Secret Service is a breath of fresh air. Oh, and it's a real highlight of the whole series. It is. It's a real high. It's a peak. And then it's kind of straight afterwards... It's business as usual, and it's like Diamonds Are Forever really suffers because of the quality of On a Majesty's Secret Service. And it's the first real dud of the Bond series. I mean, yeah. there's good films, slightly lesser films before that, but Diamonds is the one that really drops the ball. And unfortunately, it drops the ball because of all the things that happened in this film. Yes. So the reason Diamonds is so awful well, it's, I wouldn't say it's awful, it's just disappointing. <laughs> it's, it's disappointing and kind of dull. Yeah, and it's just overly goofy. Yeah. But all these things were put in place because of the perceived failure of this film. Yes. Because it's good. <laughs> in a way. Yeah, like, pretty much, yeah. Its quality was perceived as a failure. And this was perceived by the studio as well. This was like, when we go into the box office later, you'll see how wrong they were thinking about this thing because you've got to factor in the element of this being a new guy. And when you have a new guy in something like this, it's always not going to make as much money as the last one with the guy who's been established because he's popular. Exactly. Whereas if it's with a new guy, he needs to build it up again. Yeah. It's always going to be like... It's a and transitional they, film. And they, um, they looked at it as like, oh, it's not made as much money as the last one. We're in decline. No, they were wrong in trying to compare it to You Only Live Twice. They needed to go straight back to the likes of Doctor No. I mean, what kind of money did Doctor No make, actually? A lot. This film still made more money than that film. Oh, right. So it's more so you need to compare it with where Connery started. Oh, yeah. And where it can possibly go from there. Rather than compare it to Connery at his box office peak. Yeah. Because, of course, it's going to make less than that. Because it's fucking Sean Connery. Yeah. And the other thing as well, they're comparing it against things that are ridiculously successful. Like, when you adjust for inflation, Goldfinger and Thunderball, they are some of the most profitable films ever made. Yeah. When you factor into their budget... And how much they made overall. Thunderball made almost as much as Skyfall did with the film being made on a fraction of the budget. Yeah. So it made a lot more than Skyfall did. And even when you look at the American figures, it made three times as much as Skyfall did in America. Bond was huge. It's almost difficult to understand how big it was at the time. So it's funny when you look at it in context that yeah, this film was a massive disappointment. But they needed a bit of perspective to really see that it really wasn't a failure at all. It made shitloads of money. Didn't lose the studio any money at all. No, not at all. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how George Lazenby came to be cast and how this film was made, but what was George Lazenby's performance like in Bond? What did you actually think of him? Well, I think he's actually pretty good, especially as I'm very well acquainted with all the Bonds and I've read quite a lot of the novels. He does make a pretty good stab of it. It's a bit of a puzzling one. Because he had quite harsh reviews at the time, and he's always been looked at as the weak point of the film. Which, given the quality of the film, he may be. I mean, he's a little bit stiff in some scenes. Yeah, Um, I think that's... You can see him finding his feet. Yeah. But 
in other areas, he absolutely nails it. I have a very similar opinion. I think he is a little bit stiff at times, like, but you can see him loosen up in yeah. certain scenes, which have obviously been filmed later. You can see him start to fall into that role. Mm. And although he lacks the screen presence of Sean Connery, he's still a long way off growing into that anyway. I think the only thing he really lacks is um, that mean streak. Yeah. That Connery, Dalton and Craig all possess. They have a, a rather dark mean streak. And... Um, this is not lazy me on his own. I mean, Roger Moore doesn't have it. Pierce Brosnan doesn't have no. it either. That's the thing he lacks. He's actually a little bit too nice. Yeah, he's Bond. a lot softer. Yeah, he is. But in a way, it kind of works for this film because you need him to be a little bit, yeah, a little bit more vulnerable and a bit nicer in this film. Because this film is about him finding love and yeah. leaving his life behind as a misogynist murderer. <laughs> yeah, because when you look at it in the context of the novels, where it's it's much later and you've got Casino Royale in in the context of it. He's closed himself off for so many years. Yes. And then this is him opening himself up again. And it's almost like the moment he opens himself up again, he gets tripped up again. Yeah. So that's why he becomes a broken man by the end, because he knows that he can't do it ever again. And it does actually work in George Lazenby's favour when it comes to the film's emotional peak, really, because he fucking yeah. nails that scene. That's the scene which demands a real emotional response and George Lazenby nails it. We're going to speak about it later in more depth, but as his performance, I actually think as the film goes, mm. it ends on a very strong point yeah. that left me thinking, Oh, there's potential. There's yeah. potential in this actor. And it's so sad that yeah. it just ends there. Yeah. It's potential that's unused. And at the same time, you can't imagine Connery doing a scene like that. No, I don't think it would have the same impact either. It would have been something a little bit more sort of cold and detached. He's almost too cool for a mm. scene like that. Well, he's almost too cool for even to be in the storyline, because I wouldn't believe him in the storyline. No, no, you're absolutely right. So it's actually quite good in a way that they used a new Bond when doing this storyline. Yeah, it plays it's in very their much favor. in the same way that it would have been wrong for Pierce Brosnan to have done Casino Royale. Definitely, yeah. When you're having these kind of rather crucial stories, you do need a fresh perspective on it because it's you're showing a different angle to this character. I imagine it would have been a completely different film with Sean Connery in the lead. But I think the other thing we need to talk about in relation to them casting an unknown guy as this world-renowned character, that they needed somebody who was a bona fide star. You needed a leading lady in order to balance the no-star status of George Lazenby. So they were looking at a couple of people for Tracy because she was blonde in the book. So originally they were looking for like... Bridget Bardot for Tracy. Oh, right. Point, I didn't know that. But she wasn't available for whatever reason. And then they decided to go with Diana Rigg because they knew that she was very professional and had a lot of experience behind her, which would greatly balance out Lazenby's inexperience and she would help him out. I've got to admit, I have a real crush on Diana Rigg <laughs> in this film. She looks amazing. Oh, yeah, definitely. She um, really makes the character somebody that you would believe that he would fall in love with. She's not just like a passing fancy. She has got, even though you don't know much about her at all throughout the film, you know that there's things behind the eyes. Yeah. That you know that she's a very interesting person. Well, the thing is about her character is she's never going to be hailed as a feminist icon or anything mm. like that. She still occupies that damsel in distress role at times. She is in need of being saved. But she's a much more progressive character than we've ever seen in a Bond film up in this point for the time. Yeah. It doesn't just feel like a step in the right direction. It feels like a, a leap yeah. in the right direction for female characters that really hold their own against Bond. 
Yeah, because this is actually in complete contrast to the book. Because in the book, unfortunately, she isn't one of these characters. She's a, even more of a damsel in distress. And she isn't very proactive either. She's not actually involved in the main action that much. She um, doesn't actually get kidnapped and taken to Piss Gloria at all in the book. She actually waits for Bond in Munich whilst he's doing all this stuff. She's um, very passive in that way. Yeah, and so this she's is where quite I feel the, sidelined. Yeah, and this is where I feel the screenplay improves on it quite dramatically. Because, yeah, she is a bit of a damsel in distress at the end, but even when she's being held, she still holds her own against Blofeld. She doesn't seem particularly bothered that she's been captured with him. No, she actually <laughs> plays him off really coolly, yeah. and she tries to stall him, and she's kind of actively involved in the action as well. Yeah. She's never screaming to be saved or yeah. in desperate need of saving she the, <laughs> really holds her own against the uh, telly savalas yeah Z- the only thing Lofeld. that slightly undercuts her is the um at the end of the battle when she wants to go back for bond that her father actually knocks her out yeah <laughs> that is a real holdover from like yeah. 1960s action films yeah shut like up it, woman yeah <laughs> it's like all women back then used to have glass jaws as well if yeah. films are to be believed i mean <laughs> It's like if any woman is mildly... She's not even hysterical. No. She's simply like, we have to go back for Bond. And he just cocks her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the only kind of misstep or just sign of the times, really. It, it's but, a sign of the times, yeah. isn't it? It's got to be looked at in terms of when this film was made. Because, yeah. like I say, although she's never going to be held up as a feminist icon, as like, oh, this is what a woman in a Bond film should be, it's a run and jump in the right direction. Oh, yeah, and... Uh, Again, from the book, their relationship is much more developed in the film. There's a lot of sequences at the start of the film involving Draco's birthday with the bullfighters and the whole sequence with the All the Time in the World. None of that is in the book at all. Basically, the whole section between Bond and Draco meeting and him going to the College of Arms, all that is a complete invention of the screenplay. Yeah. He literally goes from one thing to the other. Oh, right. And he's even Bond himself isn't that proactive. He actually finds out all this heraldry stuff in terms of the Count de Blochamp. He finds that out from the College of Arms. So he's very passive in that way. So I actually feel that the film, for the most part, improves on a lot of areas of the book. And uh, one of the major aspects of that is the character of Tracy. She's a much better character in the film than she is in the book. Tally Savalas plays Blofeld. In or this Terry is it right yeah, I, I actually I'll wrote Terry. My, yeah. <laughs> I wrote these notes at about 2 o'clock in the morning last night and I wrote Terry Savalas. And you wrote you read them out to me before and you said Terry Savalas and I was like, no, it's not. It, it alternates between Terry and Telly. Yeah. But um, Telly Savalas plays Blofeld. He loves you, baby. He lo- Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our man Kojak. <laughs> and this isn't actually the first time we've ever seen Blofeld in the series, but it always knocks me on the wrong foot because it acts like it is. And it's weird because On a Majesty's Secret Service as a film has ties to the Sean Connery films. But I think the original intention was to ignore the events of the last film. Okay. Because if they'd done it in the correct order, Our Majesties would have followed Thunderball and he wouldn't have had this problem because in the order of the novels, the Blofeld trilogy is Thunderball, Our Majesties, and then You and Live Twice. So if they'd done it originally as they intended, it would have worked fine. But because they did Our Majesties afterwards and they'd already met Blofeld, they kind of just had to sort of ignore that fact okay it's not really until the daniel craig films come out that we really get any kind of proper sense of continuity in the bond films people always talk about casino royale being the reboot which it is in a time frame context and in terms of introducing the characters again but before that bond never really had a proper continuity you had some actors that held over for all the films but 
you never got a sense that uh, it was an ongoing story for people. No, it no, was, you didn't. Each adventure was very much self-contained stylistically, and you could go to the next film, and it's a completely different story that doesn't reference anything else from yeah, the past. In a way, the Daniel Craig films are really breaking new ground in that way, yeah. by linking all their films up. And you get a slight sense of continuity in the Brosnan films, but it's still not very... It's very hazy. Yeah, but until then, everything was stylistically... They could be their own thing. So how did you think Telly Savalas actually played Blofeld in this film? Because we have the Donald Pleasance version of Blofeld, which is the iconic version that everybody always references and the one that's referenced with Dr. Evil in Austin Powers. And that's become the image of Blofeld. And Telly Savalas' version is quite different. Yeah. But in fact, because they were going so close to the novel on this particular film... Telly Savalas' depiction of Blofeld is probably the most accurate of all the portrayals of Blofeld in all the films. The only thing he's lacking is hair. Yeah. But when you read the book of Our Majesties, you can totally see Telly Savalas in the role. Everything that he's doing is on point. Obviously, in the books, he doesn't have a cat, and that's something they invented for the films. But you just get that sense that he's um, quite suave, but very dangerous. Yeah, see, that's what I like about the character. And, and I do like that Honor Majesty's Secret Service actually gives us more time to get into the Blofeld character. Whereas with You Only Live Twice and Donald Pleasance's version of that character, mm. although he's great and he has fantastic screen presence mm. and he's instantly iconic in the way that he looks, he's not really in the film enough that we really get a handle on the character himself. Mm. It's very one note, which yeah. is I'm evil. And I guess that's where Dr. Evil comes from. Yeah. Whereas Telly Savalas' version of Blofeld actually feels like a full-fledged character with more yeah. dimensions. Than, yeah, uh, yeah. Because you've got this whole element where they're both pretending to be different people. Yeah. Both Bond a, and Telly Savalas. He's a much more believable supervillain. Yeah, he in is. In that sense. He's not cartoony at all. You can believe that this could have happened. Yeah. This is another one I think that you come to appreciate it with the passing of time. Because I remember when I saw this film originally when I was a kid, I was probably more as acquainted with the donald pleasant's version of blofeld than anything else because that was pretty much my favorite bond film at the time honor majesty's to me as a kid was always a bit of an oddity because it is a little bit more grown up it is yeah uh, than the other films are and yeah blofeld was a bit odd and i couldn't quite work out why they were different actors playing blofeld and why they were playing them completely no that always confused me as a kid actually and the less said about charles gray the better yeah because <laughs> he ain't blofeld no <laughs> Wrong pussy. Yeah. And it's so weird because it doesn't even have continuity with the Donald Pleasance version of Blofeld. No. He's nowhere near as openly evil. He's a lot more camp. Yeah, in a weird way. And effeminate in a way. Yeah, because in a strange way, in the novels, there's a Blofeld trilogy where the the character Blofeld is the through line throughout the whole series of books. And in the film series... This is also a Blofeld trilogy where Blofeld is the main villain. You've got You're Live Twice, Anna Majesties, and Diamonds Are Forever. But there's no sense of continuity throughout any of those films with the villains and the storylines and the guys who are playing Bond. It's very bizarre. No, no, you're right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you've spoke briefly as well that you've read the book recently yeah, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, I finished it at half one this morning. Oh, right. <laughs> Especially <laughs> Just for this in episode. time, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how does it actually compare to the story of the film? I know that you've said that the film actually improves on many of the plot yeah, points. Yeah, it does. But having said that, it's actually the most accurate to the novel of any of the Bond films that have ever been made. Because when you read it, it's like, oh yeah, I can see where that bit is. And some things may have changed around. Yeah. And they may have flipped some elements and 
admitted some elements, added some elements, but in terms of the core story and the core themes and uh, certain key scenes, it is exactly like the book. I mean, like we were saying before, the there's a chapter in the book called The Kapu, which alludes to the head of the Union course, which is Mark Draco. And that scene, dialogue-wise, is almost exactly the same as it is in the book, apart from a couple of things when we're talking about the uh, aforementioned rape. Yeah. <laughs> so there are oh, We say things. laughing. Yeah. Laughingly. Well, oh, the there's rape. the idea that Tracy's mother was going around Corsica wanting to be raped, and he happened to be the guy that raped her, but she wanted it. That's in the book, which I like because it gives that character a real dark edge. Yeah, because he's a very—he's still a very friendly, amiable character in the book, but he always reminded the fact that this guy is a bad man. This yeah, guy's beneath a cr- the skin, he's, the he's a, a criminal. Yeah, and he's the head of the Union Course. Which, if anybody doesn't know about the Union Course, they are the French slash Corsican mafia, and they are in fact much more powerful and much more dangerous than the Italian mafia are. So this guy is like the Godfather, but much worse. The film. I would say doesn't quite really explore that side of things. I know that they speak about it in the documentary that they wanted to see a little bit more of the mafia and gangsters and Italian gangsters in the film. But actually, it's a very small part of the film Mm. and probably rightly so, actually, because the story is concerned more with the relationship between Bond and Tracy and what's happening up in the Alps. And the sequences up in the Alps make the vast bulk of the novel. This is where the film, I think, betters the novel because what it does uses the novel as a very close reference but actually expands on it so in the novel the girls are localized to england they're all english girls and there's one irish girl but it's all about the uk and in terms of the idea of germ warfare and killing off certain strains or certain animals and things that's all focused on britain so in the novel it's all about disrupting britain's economy whereas in the film there's a lot more at stake because it's about disrupting the economy of the world yeah i know we spoke about films in the past perhaps going too big in terms of stakes Mm. and although the world is at threat as with a bond film i think bond films kind of do need that at times as long as you can make the threat feel personal and the stakes feel personal yeah i don't mind the idea that it takes it to a worldwide scale because this is a film that is a worldwide phenomenon. But I think the thing that they do right with this book and the fact that they keep true to the novel's themes is that, yeah, the stakes have gotten much bigger in that it's the world, but they still focus it around Piz Gloria because it's more about making sure these things don't get out. And in that way, the film actually feels a lot smaller than what we've seen before yeah. because we're just coming off the back of You Only Live Twice, which has probably one of the biggest sets I've ever seen constructed. Yeah. And also the idea that a spaceship eats spaceships. Exactly. It's <laughs> almost like things have gotten too big yeah. in that film. And in a way, even though the world's at stake here, it's more about these girls as well because we get to know a few of these girls as characters and it's more that we don't want it to happen to them they represent different parts of the world there's other things where they've had to sanitize the film quite a lot because at this time you couldn't get away with quite a lot of the things that fleming was talking about no at the time he's Um, a little blunter yeah than the film is actually there's certain sequences that are some of my favorite sequences in the film that aren't in the book at all they're uh, the whole breaking into Gumbold's office and getting all the documents that's done completely without any dialogue is amazing. It's completely Hitchcockian, actually, in the way that they um, yeah. set it up. I love it. It's probably one of the tensest scenes in the film. 
Well, in the whole series, really. Uh, yeah, absolutely, it's, until that uh, point. It's brilliant. There are quite a few Hitchcock comparisons you can make. A lot of these guys were around when these other filmmakers were still in action. This is not yeah. like a, a homage in the, the sense that we know it now, where we're talking about, oh, I'm doing a Hitchcock thing, I never met Hitchcock. Some of these guys probably would have known Hitchcock and probably yeah. would have worked with him, because the other two main influences, apart from Hitchcock, that Peter Hunt, the director, had, he was very much influenced by uh, Carol Reed and David Lean. Then there's also a scene later on involving the cable car. Yeah, it's um, very north by northwest. Yeah, one of my other favorite bits, which is invented, is the whole cliff top sequence at the end of the first ski chase, where the guy goes completely over the cliff, and you just get that lovely long shot oh, of him falling down. It's, yeah, it's a fantastic <laughs> long shot. I love it with the little uh, music in the background. <laughs> it's brilliant. But yeah, in terms of being adaptation, it is a very strong one, and I must um, give credit to the screenwriter who is Richard Maybaum, who is the probably the most constant figure in Bond writing. He's responsible for pretty much all the screenplays from Doctor No through License to Kill with a couple of exceptions here and there, but I think there's only like three films that he didn't work on for that whole period. Jesus, that's so, so wrong. Uh, yeah, I think it's You Only Live Twice he didn't work on, Live and Let Die, and Moonraker. All, all the films he was involved yeah. in at some point, either through first or last drafts. So, yeah, he's a very influential figure in the Bond series. A thing that I do like about the writing of this Bond film, which makes me feel like it's a completely different Bond film than we've seen before, is that the film itself seems to be about Bond as a character and not just what Bond's up to as a character. Yeah. It seems to be more about his way of life and what he's doing as he's falling in love with this girl. It's all about him kind of questioning whether or not this way of life is worth it when he loves somebody and yeah. how this way of life actually comes back to bite him in his ass when it takes away the thing that he loves. I like that this film actually speaks about Bond on a personal level and I'm struggling to think of another film that predates this that also does that. Yeah. The other thing as well, it takes Bond to the very extremes of what he's capable of because... For the first time since Doctor No, Bond has no gadgets at all. No, Yeah, that's very um, true. Because even in From Russia, he has the Attache case. And even for quite a large section of the film, and this is also in the novel, he doesn't have any weapons at all. So for the whole time that he's playing Hilary Bray, he doesn't have a gun. It's Bond finally doing some spy work oh, yeah. and going undercover. Yeah, it's um, it's like people often say about Batman is that he's the detective that never detects anything. Yeah. you could say that about Bond. This is oh, well, this is the first time we get to see him doing some legitimate spy work mm. here, where he's trying to make people believe that he's somebody else and legitimately going undercover. And it's good to see him out of his element, where yeah, there is genuine stakes in that he's unarmed. The moment they clock onto who he is, he's completely outgunned. It makes it feel a lot more tense. I think they did right by the book with this film because I think there's other Bond films where I feel a little bit let down that they didn't take more elements from the book. I mean, one of the biggest ones for me is Moonraker because I actually really like the book of Moonraker. I know it's probably by the standards of the 70s when they got around to making it was probably a bit tame because it involves missiles attacking London. But I think the book is miles better than the film in a lot of senses. I mean, they didn't even bother using the, the Bond girl's name, which is still 
unused, which I find unbelievable. What's the name? A, her name is Gala Brand, which I think is a great Bond girl yeah, it's, name. Yeah, I like that. She's yeah. still not been used. I'm hoping that someone's going to use that name at some point. But um, Well, Moonraker is just Star Wars with <sighs> Bond in it. That's what they're going for, especially yeah. at the end where there's this fucking laser fight. Yeah. Oh, God. It's, uh, it's god awful. It's almost like a play of the end of Thunderball, but in space. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, it's like Thunderball mixed with you only live twice and spy love me yeah. do you want work. to see people move very slowly and fucking float towards each other then oh. moonrake is the film for you god. it's the least exciting action sequence i've seen in a bond film. yeah it's oh god it's such an oddity i mean there's no other film like that until die another day yeah uh, very true, i think yeah. actually probably tops it yeah a little <laughs> bit yeah i mean moonrake's got bond in space but Die Another Day has got a Power Ranger at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> It's weird to say that I think Die Another Day is more unbelievable than Moonraker. I know, the setup of Moonraker is more unbelievable. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think in terms of Honor Majesties, I feel the screenplay really succeeds in getting the flavour of the book. Because even when I was reading the book, I was like, yeah, they got, I mean, they changed a couple of things, improved on a lot of things, but I feel like they got the essence of what this was about. And... It's really, really unfortunate that because this was perceived as being a failure, that we never got this quite the same again. One of the other things that actually suffered because of the failure of this film is that I would say the filmmaking is quite contemporary almost. The editing is fast, it's sharp, it's almost got this kind of roughness to it that makes it feel really kind of young. And as is the camera work, it all kind of works together in a way that like quantum of solace tried for but completely failed to oh, find yeah. Yeah, yeah it feels really energetic as a film and it's a shame that after this it just goes to being kind of like diamonds are forever feels very kind of flattened in terms of the camera work and editing as oh, a yeah, result yeah, yeah. i don't think that's really the fault of the cinematographer or the editor because i think it was simply a reaction to the failure of on her majesty's yeah. secret service well, it's interesting to note that a lot of the team involved in these films especially this film, didn't go on beyond this film. Like oh, the, well that... the director, Peter Hunt, uh, who had obviously been the editor for the previous five Bond films, didn't continue with the series at all yeah. after this point, primarily because Lazenby wasn't involved. Because I think once they got Connery back, he wasn't really interested in It's a backward being step, involved. Yeah. obviously. It's a backward um, step. And obviously everyone that came with him, i.e. second unit director and editor, John Glenn, who obviously became much more important later on, but this was his first Bond film. And, um, yeah, cinematographer Michael Reed. This is his only film as cinematographer on Bond. The whole style and everything that went into this film was really a one-time only in terms of the team that was gathered for this. In terms of the filmmaking, until we got to Skyfall, really, this is kind of as good as it got in terms of cinematography and style. Yeah. Because, I mean, there are other films that are... I mean, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace are quite well shot, but license in terms to Kill of, being another one. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even in terms of License to Kill, I mean, it strives for a bit more atmosphere, but I don't think it gets as much as it does here. Oh, no, no, you're absolutely right, because I still think um, License to Kill... There's still a lot kill, of blanket lighting yeah, and stuff. E- exactly. It's not as shots. interesting in terms of the lighting, because it's still kind of just caught within that Roger Moore era of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Only just, not in terms of what's actually going on in the film, but just in terms of how the shots being lit, they're not being as adventurous as they should yeah. they could be with the uh, and image. it's only from Golden Ironwoods that they get a bit more adventurous again with the lighting. Yes, because they were allowed to really because Broccoli wasn't involved anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
this is kind of unrelated, but cinematographer Oswald Morris, when he took over filming of Man with the Golden Gun, he was very much into the Michael Reed style of photography. If you look at Oswald Morris's other films, yeah, you will see that. And he was actually told specifically to make the Bond film look clean, which ironically is not what happens here. No. Uh, they do a lot of things to... Um, not make it look clean and uh, it's not rough around the edges it's rather beautiful to look at i would say that during the action sequences in terms of the way they cut and shoot them is that you do feel like you are thrown in amongst the fighting oh yeah especially when it comes to like fist fights yeah i mean in terms of the brutalness of those action sequences and the way they're edited again this is a peter hunt thing and it must be noted that peter hunt was responsible for cutting the fighting the train in From Russia Would Love. There's a lot of skill in, obviously, the stunt coordination, but a lot of what makes that scene great is the editing. And uh, it's uh, no coincidence that the films get increasingly sluggish and uh, lack flair as Mm. soon as he's not involved. But I feel like the action sequences here, they reach a level of uh, brutalism that's only seen in From Russia Would Love and then not seen again until Casino Royale on the, the stairs. I don't feel any of the other films get anywhere close to it until Daniel Craig takes over. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. I think, again, Timothy Dalton tries towards that. But, but in there's terms no of big, the f- like, he doesn't do fisticuffs. No, no, he doesn't. Like, there's no, no that, like, that, man yeah. on man fighting a, in, like, in Timothy, his films. Timothy Dalton's Bond seems like somebody that could get into a fist fight, but they never really cash in on yeah, that. Yeah, they never give him the opportunity. He has to that do hardness that. to him, but again, the film kind of. Uh, the films almost let him down slightly, and mm. that they never give him the opportunity to really go one on one with somebody. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Daniel Craig's fight in the stairwell actually is very reminiscent in terms of the way that it's shot and edited and the way it's supposed to make you feel to what's going on 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 a Mm. majesty's secret service but that makes sense since they do feel really like companion pieces i know we talk about that they do yeah they use this film as a jumping off point when this is the film that from a public point of view is a forgotten film yes Uh, which is what we're doing on this podcast but it's um everything that they like about like skyfall and casino royale and inception (laughs) i was just about to say um, yeah is from here it's from yeah. this one. Exactly, yeah. So and, watch and it. <laughs> another film that um, the filmmaking inspired from on a Majesty's Secret Service is Christopher Nolan's Inception. Yeah. And that's inescapable. When you watch these two films next to each other, you don't even have to watch them next to each other. It's really as clear as day where Christopher Nolan's inspirations are coming from. Yeah, it's um, almost borrowed wholesale. <laughs> exactly. And even the way that Christopher Nolan shoots and cuts... Again, he was a lot more rough around the edges with his uh, camera. He he liked um, action scenes to feel like they were kind of bubbling over the frame. Mm. That it was boiling over the frame. And that's what they're going for with this as well, is that you're in amongst it. Yeah. And there's some great things that they did, which were quite revolutionary at the time. Um, because back in the day, you could always tell when films were shot in the studio and when they weren't, because a lot of the sets wouldn't have ceilings on them, so they, they would be blanket lit from the top. So you would never get that kind of um, realistic feel that you would get from actual lighting. So what they did with this film, because he wanted to make it look as real as they could physically get it at that time, was that when they did shoot in a set, they put ceilings on the set. So they had to use smaller light sources that were actually in the room in order to light the scene, which gives you contrast and shadows and things which gives you a, 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 a real feeling yeah whereas in some of the previous bond films and obviously the films after there's a lot of blanket lighting so everything looks very flat and very bright 
uh, yeah, it does. overexposed. I mean, even when we like say when we're looking at License to Kill, there's some of those interior scenes that are very bright. Yeah, and especially when, they when really it comes to, to Sanchez's household. Yeah, and the whole casino yes, scene yeah, is very, very bright. And whereas with this, they do the other thing. And the other thing that they do, which is also uncharacteristic of the way they made films at the time, is that the vast majority of scenes were shot on location. And this includes all the scenes involving the restaurant. So that restaurant set is not a set. It's actually the restaurant it's, it's on top there. of the mountain. Yeah, that's... And what they're able to do is actually put perspex filters on the windows in order to get the light balance correct so they could film inside oh right see i was wondering how they did that because yeah. it's clear that they shot it there it's yeah. not a set it's very clear because yeah. of the kind of vista you can see yeah. through the windows but i was wondering like what they had done to make it that way kind of thing makes it so that it wasn't outside wasn't overexposed yeah so based on time of day they literally have the windows they could actually yeah, they had different colored bits of perspex that they'd put on the windows and then when it got darker or lighter, they just changed the windows. Oh, it's so as it all balanced as that. out. Movie magic. Yeah. It just really goes to show how much thought they put into all this and how much care. Because this is probably be a good time to talk about Peter Hunt because, like I said before, he was the editor on the previous five Bond films. And after Thunderball, he was kind of sick and tired of doing editing and he really wanted to direct. And he went away. Eon actually paid for him to travel around the world and it was when he was in Tokyo that he um, just by chance happened to meet up with the bomb producers again when they were doing You and Live Twice they basically said come and do the second unit for us on this please 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 edit this film because the original editor they had for that film just wasn't working out so in order for them for him to do this they promised him that he could direct the next film and he really wanted to make this film a good film yeah and that's really weird to say but i think with some of these films and i really get it with guy hamilton directed bond films i feel that he was just doing it it's a bond film yeah it's almost like like, the real lack of ambition he didn't want to be a workman and he didn't want it to be a workman like film Mm. he wanted it to have personality and above all be good yeah he wanted it to be very good and he wants it to be glamorous and uh, sophisticated because this was a time where they were pumping bond films out like every year yeah so it's like good or bad there has to be a bond film out next yeah, year yeah and he wanted to make one that wasn't just a placeholder yeah it was like i want to make a real bond film mm. that was what he set out to do and you know by and large he succeeded and we have spoken about people returning to the series. It does seem to me that the Bond series is one that rewards people that give it its loyalty. Yeah, well, it's a family. Yeah, it, exactly. We spoke about filmmaking as a family business. It's a business where families are made almost, mm. and you stick with those families as you go through films. And one person who does keep coming back to the Bond series for quite a while is John Barry, and he is quite instrumental in creating almost like the iconic theme of bond he's yeah. almost created half of the identity with the music yeah i feel these three films as well these three blofeld films on a music sense were probably um a high point for john barry i mean as much as diamonds of forever is a bit of a damp squib the uh, score is rather excellent the thing is about the earlier films is there's some great themes going on yep. but the often reuse the same pieces of music, especially that action uh, yeah, piece. It kind of becomes repetitive. Yeah. And it's in these three films where he starts to branch out and yeah. starts to explore. It's almost like he's been let off the reins and he's really just exploring new themes. And this one has a great new theme. Yeah. Well, it's got several. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you've got the Honor Majesty's 
theme, and then you've got the All the Time in the World theme. Yes. Uh, and they're the two main melodies that the rest of the score has variations of in different measures. And some of the variations are, are amazing. Yeah, and hopefully they will be playing underneath this as we are speaking yeah. now. Just yeah. to give you an idea. Not both at once, I hope. No, no. <laughs> so the interesting thing about this film is, is to note that because of the title of the, the film, at this point they weren't into doing Bond theme songs that didn't have the title of the film in them. That was still quite a way off. Yeah. I think the first one that actually did that was um, All Time High for Octopussy, unsurprisingly. Oh, it's kind of an unmemorable song as well. It's but not it's the best funny one. now that in the Daniel Craig era that we've only actually had one song of his whole era. Skyfall, that's yeah. been Skyfall. Did and you the know... the rest of them are all individual titles. And did you know that Skyfall, as a song, it's the one where the name of the film is mentioned the most, more than any other Bond, f- <laughs> Bond song. Skyfall is mentioned 19 times wow. in the song Skyfall. Yeah. A yeah. little bit of trivia for you there. But, um, Courtesy of Empire Magazine. <laughs> so, yeah, they couldn't get the title in the song. Yeah. But also, as it was a new Bond, they thought it would be appropriate to have a almost like a new Bond theme like Sean Connery had with Doctor No. Yeah. So they thought it would be better to start off in a similar way. But as this film was more of a love story as well, they wanted a, a love theme, and that ended up being like the secondary song, which is a song that everyone knows. Yes. Which is all the time in the world. So that which plays Louis Armstrong contributed to. He was very ill at the time and yeah. he said that the song resonated with him. Yeah. And he actually thanked them for letting him do it at the end, which it's, is nice. He said it's a John Barry said it was a highlight of his career doing that. It sounds it, it really mm. does. We'll fade this music out now anyway, so uh I definitely recommend picking up the soundtrack for this one because it's definitely one of the best ones. Yeah, it, it really is. It's a great soundtrack. It's one of my favourite John Barry scores mm. in general, not just a Bond score, but yeah. one of my favourite John Barrys in general. And so, moving on to the part that we've been slightly avoiding throughout this <laughs> entire podcast, but that ending. Yeah. I know we've spoke about it, that Tracy dies, but Spoilers. really get <laughs> into what actually happens in this ending. Yeah. So... Bond leaves his old life behind mm-hmm. and actually marries Tracy, his new love and the person that's made him want to be a better man. Mm. And um, he's realized that he is now just a one-woman man. And it's uh, as they're on the way to their honeymoon, they're driving down some road in Portugal, I think it is. Yeah, it's on the coast of Portugal. On the coast of Portugal. He's taking the flowers off the top of the car. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a car drives past. Driven by Blofeld with a very uh, <laughs> with neck brace goofy on. neck brace on. <laughs> and you've got Irma hanging out of the window with a machine gun in her hand. Yep. Firing at the car. And unfortunately, Tracy is hit. Yeah. And dies. And that's where the film ends. Let's talk a little bit about this ending. Yeah. And what it means for the series. Or what it could have meant for the series. There's a couple of things to note on this. Going back to the novel, the execution of this, I'd say... For some part of it, it's actually probably better, but it's not as romantic a location. So instead of being a small road on the coast of Portugal, we have yeah. it set on an autobahn <laughs> <laughs> in Germany. But the setup, I think, is better. It's much more um, Daniel Craigish, if you know what I mean. So the idea with the the novel is that they see this Maserati and they see it when they're stopped off at a, at a garage. And uh, they can see the people in it, but they can't see their faces. And then later on, when they're driving down, they see this Maserati again. 
and because Bond's a bit of a boy racer, he was uh, he was saying, "Oh, this it might be worth racing this Maserati." Yeah, it's only when they're driving past that they shoot at them, but it's actually really not the shots that cause Tracy to die. It's more the fact that the car crashes, it veers off the road, and um, it describes her as being crumpled on the steering wheel. And then he talks about having all the time in the world. In the film, it's a lot more sudden. Yeah. There's very little lead into to it. You, you're left with no inkling that this is about to happen, really. No. Uh, it's kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. A car drives past, yeah. driven by Blofeld, with, um, with a machine gun out the window. Yeah, they're very much playing it for shock tactics, which yeah. when you look at how the film was constructed, if George Lazenby had gone on to do more, you can probably see why it's done in that way. Yeah, because this wasn't actually intended to be the end of this film. No. Um, um, on a Majesty's Secret Service originally was supposed to end with the wedding and yeah, with them and driving off into the sunset. And you almost. can actually see what would have been the last shot. Y- in the y- film. Y- you can almost imagine the credits just starting. Yeah. What would have happened in Diamonds of Forever is that we would have started with this scene and uh, this would have been the pre title sequence and you would have seen uh, Tracy shot dead and then it would cut to the titles and it's a set forever. up for a much rawer oh, and yeah. angrier film and I'm like great... Jesus I really want to see that film it, it would have been a great revenge film that Quantum of Solace never was yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get a proper good revenge film until License to Kill yeah and uh, yeah and that's what Diamonds Forever and Quantum of Solace wanted to be yeah but we should have had it here and it we never definitely happened. should have I would have liked perhaps maybe one or two shots of um, or Blofeld or Anything to really get over the sense that they're being watched by someone. Yeah. And perhaps just an inkling that something sinister is going to happen. But at the same time, I can see how you could argue against that. Because that does take away from the suddenness yeah, of and, um, the, um, the death of Tracy. Yeah, and it's not as if they didn't. There is actually a deleted scene when they're getting the ring in uh, in Switzerland. And there is a scene where they're being watched by Emma Bunt. Ah. Which is in the book but in a different location. Oh, so they actually filmed it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but um, it's one of those things where, because this was for a long time, the longest Bond film, the original cut of this was two hours, 35 minutes or something yeah. like that. There was another big long sequence after the Hilary Bray sequence and chasing a guy because they've been bugged and he chases into the uh, the London Underground post office system and that's all gone. I don't even know where that is. That's, oh, I can't right. Find wow. that I can't even find that as a deleted scene, unfortunately. But there's some stills because a lot of the stills you see of, of Lazenby when he's jumping on the rooftops with some oh, pause yeah, behind Yeah, him, I've seen that. That's a yeah. still from that sequence. Oh, right. But yeah, they were really pushed for time because with all that stuff cut out, it's still a long film. It's actually still now the fourth longest James Bond film it was for a long time the longest and it's only since the three Daniel Craigs have uh, usurped it somewhat especially this new one which is the longest one they had to cut it all out for time you would have had a bit of foreshadowing but they decided obviously at the time they didn't need it I can see that yeah and I do think it works as a sudden impact Mm. kind of thing in terms of Bond film history it's a very odd way to end the film it is and unfortunately it's another film that Again, it promises a lot to come, and yet we never get a delivery on that promise. Yeah. Instead, yeah. we get diamonds off forever. And yeah. we've spoke about that. It's a, it's a misstep. History repeats itself because we kind of had a similar situation with Casino Royale, and then we got Quantum of Solace. Yes. 
which again drops the ball. I don't think in the same way that Diamonds of Forever does it, but um, drops the ball in a completely different way. Whereas Quantum of Solace does try to um, follow Casino Royale in terms of following Bond as he's trying to seek vengeance, even though that is curiously a very small part of that film. Yeah. It tries to feel furious yeah. and, and rage-filled. It kind of just fumbles it completely yeah. in Whereas- the execution. Whereas Diamonds of Forever just kind of starts afresh. It doesn't even do that. It kind of just falls back on path glories yes. and just comes yeah. off as a, a pale imitation of it because the idea of diamonds is to in a lot of ways invoke memories of goldfinger yeah because they got guy hamilton back they were originally going to have the plot involving goldfinger's twin brother who oh, okay would, he would again be played <laughs> by gert frober you can really tell at this point because of this perceived failure they really didn't know what they wanted to do because yeah. there, there was ideas about getting an american bond because that's what should happen on a majesty's is the start of all the turmoil that it didn't really settle again until spy you love me so throughout most of the 70s or at least the first half of the 70s the uh, future of bond was rather uncertain for quite a large proportion of the time and you can really tell they weren't quite sure where they wanted to go they were very unsure of themselves it's clear as day and it's weird to think that this is the film that caused all that turmoil because it's great. Because, yeah, exactly. Because like they they failed to recognise that this was a film of such quality that they were just looking at it as a commercial thing. It's property. because they've made something that's genuinely good, that's genuinely great, and it's almost like, oh well, it can't be like that because that one didn't make as much money as we needed. Yeah, obviously, audience they've don't decided like it being great. Exactly. So we need, want it to be trashy. Exactly. That's it. It's like, oh, we need we need all of those goofier elements. And they're just trying to kind of throw all these goofy elements into a blender and make something of it rather than actually pursue a half-decent story Mm. that on Her Majesty's Secret Service is and one that challenges Bond and Bond fans with new things. Yeah. Instead, like you say, it just falls back on old ideas and on familiar ground. Yeah, and it's very unsurprising when you learn that Peter Hunt decided not to come back to the Bond series when they came up with all these ideas of going back to Goldfinger and getting Connery back and going back to this style is obviously something he wasn't interested in at all. Yeah. And yeah, it's just a great missed opportunity of the Bond series. And it's a weird one to think where it would have gone if they continued. It is very strange though, because it's like, if they'd gone in that direction, would we still be talking about Bond now? Would yeah. Would it be a thing that was a, a thing that happened in the 60s and 70s and then died off? Or and then, yeah, and then petered away. Yeah. And it's, that's the thing with series like this is you just have to take them as they come, yeah. warts and all, because it's because of the Roger Moore films and it's because of all of its faults and all of the films that don't work quite well that it is the way it is now mm. because all of those bad decisions, in retrospect, inform what the filmmakers are doing now with Bond. Yeah. So... There are lessons to be learned, and it does seem that even though every now and again the Bond series does fall into old traps, they do use the lessons of the past to inform what they're doing yeah. in the present. Okay, so I think we've uh, established what we feel about On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. It's clearly a film that we love. It has definitely seduced and conquered us. <laughs> <laughs> but what did audiences and critics think of this uh, globe-trotting sexual predator? <laughs> Well, <laughs> okay, so first up, over to the critics. Andy, you've got the stats. Okay, so when we go to Rotten Tomatoes, this film has a rating of 82%, which um, I think is a little bit low. 
Yeah, yeah. I'd say high 80s, I would say. Yeah, or a solid 90, something like that. Yeah, it's still comfortably fresh, which means yeah. that uh, critics are fans. Yeah, yeah. What was um, the average rating? Average rating is 6.8 out of 10, which is incredibly low. That is, yeah, very that low. That needs to be at least like a, a, a high 7 point something, or at least an 8 or something like that. Definitely. Yeah. And Empire gave it 4 out of 5. Is this like a retrospective? Yes, review? it was a yeah. retrospective. They say this is the Bonflick blessed with the best plot, a genuine sense of emotion, and a spirit closest to Ian Fleming's novels. This is also Christopher Nolan's favourite Bond film, as we've already discussed. Yeah, it's that again clear yeah. as day. Uh, there isn't a Roger Ebert review, because I don't think Roger Ebert was around at this time in terms of reviewing films. No, no, he's done some retrospectives, but I don't think this has ever really fallen yeah. under that. IMDb is another weird one, and it's exactly the same rating as on Rotten Tomatoes. It is 6.8 out of 10, which is, again, just far too low. Yeah. And I think this is down to people rating it based on what they know of cinematic Bond. There's so many people that go, oh, this is not right for Bond, when they only know the cinematic Bond. Yeah. Or they've grown up with Roger Moore and things like this. Well, there's so many different kinds of Bonds. There is. All different identities that if you just get your hooks laxed into one of them, you could make a case that every single other Bond isn't this Bond. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. I think that's what happens a lot with these kind of lesser-known Bond films is they just get harshly reviewed and criticised by people that are like, oh, no, he's not Bond. This one's Bond. They get very defensive yeah, about who... Yeah, and it's, it's... I think even now we'll get into a point where they, they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't because Exa- yeah, definitely. we're seeing it right now with Spectre because it's being criticised because it's not Skyfall. It's criticised for being a slightly more traditional Bond adventure. Exactly. And it's like... What do you want? <laughs> you, you can't please everybody. You no, can only make the no. film that you want to Especially make. Especially when you've got a legacy of 23 films. You, yeah, You're exactly. always going to have people who have opinions on everything. And, and probably even more so at the time when this film came up because all people knew was Sean Connery. And um, doing a film that was not a Sean Connery film, didn't feature Sean Connery and was slightly different in style, was obviously going to turn some people off. Yeah. I mean, we've really got to get into the mind frame that... All audiences knew back then with Sean Connery. This series wasn't like it is now in which you expect Bond to change every decade or so. You expect to see a new Bond. And in fact, people look forward to it. We're looking forward to it now. Even though I love Daniel Craig, I'm sat here thinking, oh, who's going to be the next Bond? Where are they going to go next? Exactly. There's an excitement about it. Whereas back then, it was almost like a trepidation. It's almost like, oh God, what are they trying to do? You know, just let it die. It could be something like that. People think Connery is Bond. Bond can't stand on its own feet. And it's weird to think that at one time, it wasn't about Bond. It was about Sean Connery. Yeah. And you still get that now as well, because obviously there's it's the mass opinion. People always say, oh, Connery is the best Bond. And I'm not taking anything away from Sean Connery because he's a great Bond. He's a great Bond. But him being the best Bond that everyone else is not quite as good, that's a nonsense. Oh, it really is a nonsense. So, yeah. Because when you read the Bond in the books, in fact, there's been no actor who's actually nailed it on the head. They've all taken bits from the character in fact the character on the page is so complex is that you couldn't really portray it in its entirety as a part because there's too many things to it and there's a lot of um there's a lot of internalization as well that you can't really portray on screen either but yeah in terms of like styles there's so many things you can delve into 
Yeah. And again, everyone's always going to have an opinion, but I'm just not a fan of these popularist opinions because it's, again, people that just haven't been paying attention enough or people that just really don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think as a Bond fan, you've simply got to be open because yeah. it's always going to change. It's always going to adapt. And because of the way that it is now, and this is how it should be, it's always going to be challenging to be new things. At least I hope it does. Mm. I hope it continues to challenge while still being Bond and still being about Bond and still being identifiably Ian Fleming's character. I still hope that it challenges audiences on what to expect Mm. or else it would just fall into the same trap that it did when Diamonds Are Forever was made. That's the future of Bond if it just falls back into formula. But what did Honor Majesty's Secret Service make at the box office? Mm. Well, that's what I'm here to tell you. And although there are no figures on Box Office Mojo other than what it made domestically, which I think was around $22 million, mm. there are no open and weekend figures and there's no, no worldwide figures. I had to go to Wikipedia for this. Yeah. So the budget was $7 million, mm-hmm. which was down slightly from yes. the one before. Yeah, because it was actually a cheaper film to make, yeah, obviously. It was 10.4, I think it was, the last film. Yeah. Which is completely understandable considering the massive set, the scale of You Only Live Twice. That cost a million dollars. Yeah, exactly. The time. It was set on its own. Yeah. So that's completely understandable. And it's a new bond. There's a lot more on the line. There's a lot more risk. Mm. And again, it's a more traditional adventure. It's it's not as big or spectacular exactly. as, um, as You Only Live Twice and Thunderball was. And at the box office, it made worldwide $64.6 million. So that's on a $7 million budget. That's great numbers. Yeah. But... <laughs> It's not what the Bond producers wanted, and we have to put this into context by comparing it to the previous Bond films. So, You Only Live Twice, which was the one before, that was made for something like $10.4 million, mm-hmm. and it went on to make $111.6 million, mm-hmm. and Thunderball made $141.2 million. Yeah, which in today's money is like well over a billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. So, it wasn't so much that On a Majesty's Secret Service wasn't profitable, it was more so that it wasn't as profitable. Well, we keep going back to this whole thing of underperforming, don't we? So it underperformed from their expectations, which I don't know what they would have been. It's like they're expecting it to do as well. Yeah. When you're dealing with somebody who's not an established star in the role, you're yeah. starting again in a way. And it's sad because the producers decided to follow the money and were rewarded by that. Because Sean Connery came in, did Diamonds Are Forever, and that film went on to make $116 million at the box office because people want to go see Sean Connery as Bond. Yeah, and it's always a bit unclear as to like whether Lazenby was fired, let go, or whether he left of his own accord. Yeah, there seem to be different conflicting stories around that. It's I cast- think every single one of them is a little bit true. Yeah, it's cast in darkness. Like I say, yeah. there was some conflicts going on there on a producer-actor level, yeah. and um, there's definitely a shadiness to that whole... Yeah whole situation but i think they knew he was going but then i think they used him as a scapegoat definitely i, th- I, I think it, peter hunt actually says that as well yeah. that he was they needed somebody to blame and yeah. they blamed him but the thing is again they're comparing it to the wrong films they needed to compare it to dr no when sean connery started off yep. as bond and let's look at where he can go he deserved at least one more film but then again we wouldn't be in this position now no. with the fantastic bond films we're getting now if it wasn't for these perceived failures yeah Okay, so that leads me to ask the questions, as I usually do at the end of these episodes, and are we any closer to understanding why Honor Majesty's Secret Service has been forgotten by general audiences? Because it's something of a Bond favourite amongst some fans, Yeah, but in terms of general audiences, it's often overlooked. Yeah, I think this is a victim of hearsay. 
because the film was perceived as not doing very well, and because George Lazenby only did one film and he didn't have enough time to establish himself in the role properly, yeah, he's always been looked on as a lesser Bond, and because of that, the film's been looked on as a lesser film and not worth exploring because he's only in this one film. Whereas, in terms of certain Bond fans, where they are fans of the novels and they know the whole thing inside out, they're much likely to go back to this film. But yeah, on a general audience point, this is much lesser known, which is weird when you think how much it resembles the newer Bond films that are out now, yeah. like the last three or four. Well, that's the thing. I understand how it's been forgotten when it was made. The press were against it. Some audiences were against it, as they always are, against change. And so everybody had their knives drawn for this film. And despite it being as good as it is, not as many people turned up. And the hearsay just simply got too big for what the film was it it couldn't overcome that and since then because the series went on with sean connery and then roger moore and on and on and on it's simply been pushed aside Mm. but as long as it's got fans like christopher nolan and as long as it continues to be referenced in these new films which it has been Mm. i think its popularity is due to grow enormously yeah and i think we're starting to see that Especially with Spectre using the On Her Majesty's Secret Service theme in its trailer. Mm, yeah. I think we're starting to see more people finally give George Lazenby's Bond a second chance. So, although it has been forgotten, I think it's getting that second chance it much deserves. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's got the Blu-ray to thank for that as well. And the Definitely. whole Bond box set thing, because people are now able to watch everything together. Yes. In a way that they may have not done beforehand. But would you recommend they watch it over three days solid? Uh, no. No, that's for people like us to do. No, but it's definitely worth revisiting. I, You know, it's, it's definitely one of the best forgotten movies, and Diamonds Forever is definitely best forgotten. Yes. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, skimming over that one, so we don't have to do that one for an episode. But yeah, it's just in a league of its own with all the films around it. It's a completely different kind of film. And again, that's why it's a cinematic oddity. Yes, definitely. It's for its virtues that it's been forgotten for some weird reason. It's weird. Yeah, and I have to agree as well. For me, On a Majesty's Secret Service is simply best of the forgotten. I think I've already spoken about why I think that. Um, I like that it's a Bond film that says something about Bond. Mm-hmm. And it breaks a lot of the barriers. It's a first for Bond in, in many a sense. And... I'm glad it isn't the last for Bond because no. for, for a while it looked like we weren't going to get a Bond film like that ever again and Casino Royale's come about and it's changed the game once more. Mm. It's got back to what they tried to do with and succeeded to do with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Mm. So yeah, it's definitely best of the forgotten for me. Now at this point we would usually jump straight to the closing words but after our James Bond marathon I have a few Bond related questions to pose. Yeah, yeah. First off, who would you say is your favourite Bond? Ooh, I'm not sure I can pin it down to to one, but um, I would say, as I'm a fan of the books as well as like cinematic Bond, for me personally, I think Daniel Craig and Timothy Dalton. But I would say that Sean Connery is the next best by a little bit. I think yeah. he lacks a couple of things that I think give the other two an edge which is the real sense of uh realism and danger i think he kind of lacks in his portrayal but um he's pretty much up there with them as well and i said there's no bond i really dislike 
I know there's some Bond fans that like really hate one band or they really don't like. Yeah. like are you really a Bond fan? <laughs> if you like, <laughs> if you like that, I hate this. When you go on forums and anything, yeah, and you see these people and they're just like, um, well, they're, they're called trolls now, really, aren't they? But yeah, yeah. They seem to absolutely love what they're talking about to the point where they hate everything that's new. Well, that's it. It's, it's the refusal um, to change. It's, yeah. It's um, almost like a complete refusal that these even exist yeah. as Bond. If people become too defensive. Yeah. It is possible to love something too much because they just become defensive about one thing and then they see this change, like this next Bond, as a challenge yeah. almost. That's not really. It's just a different variation on Bond. I mean, we got it with Daniel Craig when he was first cast and we got those, uh, what was it, Bond Not Blonde websites yeah. that popped up. And it's still going. Still yep. going very strong, still Bond going. Not Blonde. And we're doing the same thing again with uh, Black Bond as yep. well. Which is, yeah, uh, we are. Again, a nonsense. I mean, to put my two cents in it, they've had the old Idris Elba thing, which for me personally, I don't mind having a black actor as Bond. I'm not sure whether Idris Elba is the right guy. Yeah. I think there's other black actors out there who would be fine for it. And again, I think it's one of those things where that part of it should be irrelevant in terms of whether he's black or white or whatever. It's about having the best actor for that role. Yeah. Who's the best person for that part at that time. Yeah. Because again, it's just doing it for the sake of it. I like Idris Elba. I know everybody keeps talking about Idris Elba as the next Bond. And I like Idris Elba. And at one point, I mean, maybe five years ago, we used to talk about this, but I used to think Idris Elba would be a great next Bond. Yeah. I think he's too old now. Yeah, it seems to be this thing at the moment where people are talking about different actors like Damien Lewis and blah, blah, blah. But all the actors that they're talking about, they're all too old. They're all the same age or literally just a little bit younger than Daniel Craig. When you need someone who's in... The mid thirties, really? Yeah, yeah. You really need somebody like mid to late thirties with at least like a good ten years yeah, yeah. above them that's for an incredibly physically demanding job. Yeah. Because we've already seen what happens when you let Bond get too old. Yeah. And that's when you end up with a view to a kill. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> which um I mean, Roger Moore's so old and a view to a kill that he could convincingly just uh, if he's ever caught snooping, he could convince others that he's just simply got dementia. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But I've got to put my two cents in there as well. And I think I agree with you. I think Timothy Dalton or Daniel Craig are my favorite Bonds. They're the ones that I always go to and what my idea of Bond is. But I like all the Bonds in some way, which makes this next question a little bit harder. Because who is your least favorite Bond? Well, that one's actually probably an easy one to answer for me. Because like I said, I do like all the Bonds in different things. But I have to say for me, and this is... This is only really revealed to me when we watched the... We've done the Bond Marathon twice now. Yeah. And it was revealed to me the first time we watched them and was even more apparent when we watched it the second time. It was kind of exemplified. Time. Yeah. It? It- um, the weakest Bond is actually Pierce Brosnan. But the main reason for that, because most people would say, oh, Roger Moore or George Lazenby. But the main problem with Pierce Brosnan is that he tries to achieve this balance between Roger Moore and Sean Connery. Yeah. But... In doing that, he adds nothing new to the role. He brings nothing else to it, which is unlike any of his other contemporaries where they've all injected a new element into yeah. Bond. Pierce Brosnan doesn't do that. He's very just middle of the road, really. Mm-hmm. Neither one thing or the other, and ends yeah, just being middle of the road. And it's actually only in recent interviews that Pierce Brosnan has revealed that he's not actually very happy with his performance as James Bond. He actually thought he fucked it up. Yeah, uh, and he's always and it's not really about him though. No, it was but, more so that the Timothy Dalton Bond was meant for him. Yeah, and I think he's looking back at that, and now those films are held more fondly mm. than his films. It's yeah. almost like God, 
I kind of missed it. Just missed it. Yeah. If he said, you know, if he'd done it again, he would have done it completely differently. And I think... Yeah. Um, and again, it's not entirely his fault because I think there's uh, a lot of problems with the films that he was in. Yeah. Because uh, bar Goldeneye, none of the other films that he did were really of any high quality. And he was really let down by the material. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't feel even in Goldeneye, he brought enough that was new about that part. I couldn't tell you in one word or one phrase what his bond was like compared to the others. No. The, all the other bonds, I could pretty much give you give you a rundown of what they're like was his his is just middle of the road yeah and i hate to be the second person always uh talking on this one because all i'm left to do is agree with you <laughs> um every single time i just sound like an echo chamber but um i think pierce brosnan is my least favorite bond but i really love goldeneye i think it's great and i think that's the only really solid film out of the lot tomorrow never dies is all right yeah. But it kind of it's a very kind of steep curve mm. and it's straight downhill. And I would also say Roger Moore is actually quite away from what I would say Bond is. If I'm just judging it by my perception of who Bond yeah, is, yeah. he's some distance from it. But at the same time, I kind of have warmed to him. Yeah, as a, he's entertaining as, in his own right. Exactly. He's never not dull. Whereas the yeah. thing is about Pierce Brosnan's Bonds is that it's kind of dull. Yeah. There's no um, there's no flair. Yeah. So although Roger Moore is like much further away, yeah. it's still Pierce Brosnan as my, my yeah. least favorite Bond. His films are the ones I'm going to revisit less so. And uh, just two more questions to go. Ooh. Your top three James Bond films. I imagine this one will be a hard one. And in fact, I'm going to answer this one first, yep. just to lay it down, because I, I can't be the one that's always repeating you. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my three are going to be, oh, well, I'm in a situation here because I don't think I'm going to mention one of them. Yeah. As it might be a future episode for Best Forgotten Movie. So I'm going to go with something else. And I would say Skyfall mm-hmm. from Russia with Love and perhaps... The Living Daylights. Because I, I do love Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It's definitely top five material. But um, I think those three films have stronger bonds at times. You know, like uh, more natural. Yeah. Like there's yeah, still a yeah. stiffness to George Lazenby, even though he shows so much potential Yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of uh, where it could grow. I think those three are my, uh, my three favorites. Especially because The Living Daylights comes at a time where it's sorely needed. Yeah. It's kind of quality is uh, almost amplified because it follows a view to a kill. Yeah, definitely. Um, it becomes the real breath of fresh air that we really needed. Yeah. Uh, I think mine, yeah, definitely Skyfall. Although it seems a bit trendy to hate on Skyfall at the moment for some weird reason. Yeah, I imagine um, that we're going to be uh, snorted out a little bit by some uh, yeah, cause there's real, a lot of like, people real like, Bond fans. There's a lot of people that like Casino Royale, but the main problem with Casino Royale is literally three films yes. bolted together. Yeah, that, that's and my, there's, yeah. a, there's a lack of a through line in a way. I mean, the middle section is, is amazing. Yeah, it is. But the other two sections either side are not quite as good and it doesn't have the same level of continuity because you have the action bits and then it's all card games and then it's more action and this it's a little, little bit, bit too episodic. I still love it but yeah. I think it's a little bit disjointed and episodic in that way whereas Skyfall isn't like that it definitely has a a proper three story although again I'm going to completely um uh, you know anyone says that that film has the home alone elements I'm just going to like shoot them in the head because <laughs> they don't understand Full cinema on. and they don't understand that in terms of the Home Alone element that they say it is, that's not Home Alone. That is a fucking Western. And yeah. that is what Home Alone draws upon. 
That's real bravo. Yeah, and that's actually, for me, and I know a lot of people don't like that part of the film, it's actually my favourite section of the whole film. Yeah. That whole end sequence is amazing. The film's great, and it just goes to a complete other level Yeah, for that ending. It, yeah. it, it's just, there's not a single moment I would take out. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say Skyfall. Yeah, for me, I'd probably say On a Majesty's, probably of Living Daylights, because as much as I like Living Daylights... I don't think the villain is strong enough for me. Yeah, the, the, the villain's plot's a bit murky. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know what I mean, and also I just think it's a on a Majesty's is a better made film. Yeah, and then yeah, I'm just trying to think the third one. Yeah, I'd probably say from Russia. I mean, it's always the cliche one, but it is really good. It's it's fucking great. <laughs> it's, and it's got Robert Shaw in yeah. it as well I, I in a fantastic that, again, role. That's another film that's great. But the main thing that really makes it great is the whole sequence from beginning to end on the train. Yeah. The whole train sequence is uh, probably, it's one of the best sequences in all Bond yeah, history. Yeah, it is. Uh, because so, it's so well executed. You go through so Yeah, exactly. You go through so many emotions watching it as well. It's uh, yeah. It's just a, it's, it's a real thriller. Yeah. So those are my three. Probably Sky, yeah, Skyfall, Honor Majesties, and From Russia With Love. Okay, so I won't force you to pick three. Oh. But- we're going to go for least favourite Bond film right. now. And there are a few possibilities, I would say, that are yeah. on the table. But it's all about which way do we go at this? Are we going for strictly which one's quality-wise bad? Or which one's the least entertaining? Yeah, because this is another thing that we picked up on when we watched the the films in sequence. Because obviously when you're watching films back-to-back, and we were literally doing like eight films in a row, and they're having a break, and then doing another eight films in a row you're obviously going to get a certain amount of fatigue. But when we did it twice, we noticed that we were getting fatigued with some of the same films. Yes. And we realized that it wasn't us, it was the film. And um, this is the Brosnan question, really. This should be the theory. This is the Brosnan (laughs) question. It's pretty much a given that Pierce Brosnan's last two films are his weakest and are some of the weaker Bond films. But what we noticed is, for sheer entertainment value... Dying of the Day was actually better. It was a better watching experience, a better viewing experience than World Is Not Enough. It really was because although it's terrible, I mean, it's it's really terrible. Yeah. It's god-awful. It's a sin bin material, yeah. definitely. But I still enjoyed it. It yeah, still it, made it, me feel something. Yeah, it's, got a, it, it's got a so bad it's good nature to exactly. it. Exactly. Whereas I just felt nothing watching The World Is Not Enough. Yeah. I was just... I was so done with that shit. And you know what? The World Is Not Enough is a film that during that entire marathon, both times, it's the film in which I reached a point where I was like, you know what? I could quit here. Yeah. I could stop. I could stop doing this now. <laughs> and it's just because it's so incredibly, it's remarkably dull yeah. in, in, in every yeah. way. Even the action is shot in such a way that there's no energy to it. Yeah. I know a lot of people are going on about the Denise Richards thing, and that is a part of it, but... Even on, on it's other not even levels, the biggest part of it. No, because um, even on a on a cinematography level, it's all it's so flat and dull, yeah, and um, unexciting. And the way the action sequences are executed and edited together, and how some of the action sequences have no relation to the plot at all, it's just a, a complete non-entity, and it really is a placeholder film. It is, yeah. And that's weird because when I first saw it, I really enjoyed that film. I thought for me, it was actually uh, a step up again from Tomorrow Never Dies. It kind of felt, for me at the time, closer to Goldeneye. You look forward to these things so much that you convince yourself of it sometimes. You get blinded by your own kind of expectations. Yeah. 
that you convince yourself that yeah it was the thing i really want to see we saw people do it with the phantom menace mm, um, and that took years to wear off oh definitely. <laughs> <laughs> weird that they both came out in the same year yeah it is yeah, yeah. 1999 the year of disappointment a great year for film yeah <laughs> I think we're both set on that yeah, one. It has definitely. to be the world is not enough. I mean, we could go for Die Another Day or A View to a Kill or even Moonraker. But they've all got entertainment like value. But I enjoyed watching yep. them. Yep. I was laughing most of the time, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, the world is not enough. That's the one to avoid. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think that's it. That's, that's it for our Bond episode. Yeah, or if you want a good doze... Then yeah, World's Not Enough is great. If you want, <laughs> yeah. if you've run out of Nitol, uh, watch World Is Not Enough. <laughs> okay, and that's all we have time for for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4 Movies. So please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Join us next week as we cross swords with Russell Mulcahy's fan favorite sequel, Highlander 2: The Quickening. Who will be left standing? Well, there can be only one. But until then, it's bye from myself and ta-ta from Andy. Ta-ta and James Bond will return. (laughs) Yeah, Best Forgotten Movies will return. Yeah. So, thanks for listening.